This is Make Yourself at Home, a podcast from BizNow where we hear from people in real estate about their lives and their businesses in this time of crisis and isolation. I'm Miriam Hall. I'm BizNow's New York reporter. Since the death of George Floyd and the demonstrations that followed, business people everywhere are making public comments about how they and their companies need to do better. Leaders in real estate, which has a well-acknowledged diversity issue, have also been making statements about working to fix the problem. The question is, how to actually turn these statements into identifiable change? In this week's episode, we hear from Cedric Bobo, who runs Project Destined. It's a social impact platform that has a non-profit side that aims to offer young people the training they need to break into the real estate industry. The whole idea is to demystify real estate and show people that they too can be part of the development in their neighbourhoods. Westfield, Brookfield, Walker and Dunlop and former Yankee great Alex Rodriguez have all backed the program and it gives students training and the chance to work with members of the industry and to compete against each other on mock development pitches. Cedric, who grew up in Memphis and studied engineering, went aboard to Oxford and eventually went to work on Wall Street. After time at firms like the Carlyle Group, he decided he'd made enough money to look after his family and he wanted to do something meaningful. He set up Project Destined after seeing a movie about Detroit and realising it would be a good way to empower young people. From there, in 2016, it's grown across the US and to London. He's speaking here about the importance of ownership, building real estate's next pipeline of talent, and why real estate companies need to look at their metrics and look at their own record on diversity to make proper change. From an early age, my mom had really, there were two priorities. It was one, obviously, education. And the second is that she always, you know, this theme of ownership. Now, my mom wasn't sort of, you know, a private equity person. I mean, she was just a woman who really, you know, wanted to be an owner. I mean, her, her, her grandfather owned a farm and he took great pride in that there may have been Racial, racial bias in his small town in Mississippi. But when he went home at night, he had a hundred acre farm that was his. And so when he woke up, it was his. When he went to bed, it was his. I mean, between that time period, he experienced lots of tough things as a African-American man in Northern Mississippi, but ultimately he owned real estate. And so I think for my mom, whatever I did, she wanted me to be an owner. Uh, and so I think that theme just always stuck with me. So I studied engineering in school, uh, luckily, I spent a year at Oxford and played rugby and learned about investment banking and private equity. And I was like, wow, like this is the theme my mom's been teaching me about since I was eight years old. And so after I worked in private equity for a long time uh, and I just didn't run into enough folks who look like me, I was like, there is an opportunity here, you know, to develop talent. And I didn't think about it like as a nonprofit. That's not how I think. I thought about it as like there is a need to develop talent. And I think I've got both the interest and the acumen to be able to fill that gap. Did your mom own her own home? She did. She did. Uh, and again, it was an immense sense of sort an immense source of pride that again, she may have tough days, she may have good days, bad days. But at the end of the day, she owned a piece of real estate that was hers. And I think she that made her feel like she had real stakes in the game. Uh, and the way she interpreted any data was through the lens of an owner. And I just, there's just a different feel than some of my peers who when they face setbacks, they felt as though the world was against them. Uh, and my mom didn't think of it that way. She thought it may have been a setback. I own a piece of property and I can do more. So you um, studied engineering, you went to Oxford, you were playing rugby. How did you then get into private equity? How did you make that jump? So I got super lucky in that um, I applied to, for a job on Wall Street and 
they placed me um uh they placed me in the financial sponsors group i had no idea what a financial sponsor was uh, but i quickly learned you covered people who bought stuff uh and the, my favorite story is um we were pitching a deal smucker's jam i think it was to tpg and i asked the, my associate i said so is the is the meeting in um is it in texas because they're called texas specific he's like no it's not in texas is it in san francisco i heard they got an office there he's like no he said the meeting's in aspen because uh the guy who runs a firm likes to be there for summer. And I was like, I don't know what they do, but like, I think I want to do that. Uh, and that kind of set me on the path to finding interest in private equity. I went to Investment Bank where they were known for getting folks into it. And then the rest is history in terms of gaining access. So you heard the second thing for me, education, then access. I got fortunate that I had a fraternity brother who was at this, was at this private equity firm. He got me an internship and I got a job. And so that was a key turning point. Were there a lot of black men in, in private equity at that time? I mean, there weren't at that time and there aren't now. I mean, it's not, it's not a sector that I think um, prides itself. I mean, we'll tell a story of great diversity, maybe seeking to become more diverse, but the state of play today is that it's not. I mean, I think I heard a stat today that sort of, you know, of all the trillions of dollars of capital that's managed in the world, you know, 1% is managed by people of color. Uh, and so I think it's certainly a place where, where as a country, we can get better. You keep mentioning luck. You said you were lucky enough to have the opportunity to get into this internship and you, you know, fraternity brother. Hmm. Kind of all been luck, though. It wasn't pure luck because I, I was fortunate because I started with awareness. I was aware that ownership was important from an early age. Um, once I got to Wall Street, I was aware that being in private equity could create sort of a great life outcome for me. So I was aware and then through persistence and doggedness, you know, I was able to go after it. But the luck was sometimes meeting people who would help me along the way, right? So the networking piece of it was the thing because you can have all the credentials in the world, but to get into these small, tiny circles like private equity, you need a bit of luck to meet someone that really takes an interest in you and propels you. And if you're diverse, I think it's more of a challenge because sometimes there's not the connectivity with some of the existing professionals in the sector. So you've got to work doubly hard. Yeah, that seems to be the ongoing problem is like the network is run by white men and then it just seems to be self-perpetuating. I think what happens is that, um, you know, these again, these are extraordinarily small circles. They're hiring one to two people a year. Um, and when you're coming into an interview, I mean, you've got 50 candidates um, and, you know, you're going to hire one person and, you know, you've got if you're a person of diverse background, likely the person that's hiring you is not diverse. And so you've got to figure out a way to really network and make a strong impression so you can distinguish yourself. And you're not going to have the cultural connectivity necessarily. So you've got to find other tools or connective points to be able to get them to take an interest and give you the job. So it sounds like you, you really enjoyed private equity. Does it sound like a great career? So I will say I like I like owning stuff. I like investing money. I like owning. Uh, but I also like, I mean, I think what I like about investing and being an entrepreneur is I like the control over my time uh, in the sense that I've got three sons. And I like the idea now that I can develop a new generation of owners. I can continue to invest, but I have some ability to do it on my own terms. Because I've got three sons and, you know, by gosh, I'd love for them to follow in my footsteps. Tell me a little bit about the jump from private equity into forming Project Destined. Well, I think the first thing is that when I was in private equity, you know, I um, I always had a social interest in that I started two nonprofits. 
that were focused on education. So I, I did make a leap quickly. What I did is that I, I really began to put my toe in the water to understand, you know, what frankly made me happy because I felt like I was hardworking enough that it made me, if it made me happy, I could be one of the best in the world at it. Like that's always sort of like, it's like an athlete's mentality. I want to be one of the best in the world. So I better love it. So I work doubly hard. Um, and so, um, you know, I started some nonprofits while I was in private equity. And also, you know, I began investing in real estate with my wife uh, simply because her dad, her dad was a surgeon in London, but he invested in real estate uh, outside of his work. And I began trying it out. And frankly, I loved it. Uh, and it connected with something that my mom told me early on is that, you know, again, owning real estate is so unique because they don't create any more of it. Uh, and so I began buying real estate while I was in private equity. And I began sort I began building an nonprofit while I was there. So when I left, for me, it was quite natural that two things I was passionate about would be able to be combined. Did you have any doubts about forging ahead with this type of work? Uh, I mean, I, I think that um, I mean, if I'm if I'm completely candid, I mean, I think I'm, you know, I'm fueled by insecurity. I'm fueled by like I won't be good enough. I'm fueled by that like I could fail. But frankly, I was fueled by that every day when I was in private equity. Um, and so the, that sort of um, concern or worry about failing just causes you, frankly, to overprepare. And so I think by the time I left and I got started, one, I was financially prepared. We'd saved a ton so we could take the risk of it not happening right away. Uh, and two, the most important thing I will tell you is I had saved enough to be able to invest in myself. So when I started Project Destin, um, you know, the real estate I bought on my, all the equity came from me. I mean, I borrowed money from banks, but I didn't have to go out and raise capital to buy the real estate. You know, when I launched the education piece, I didn't have to go out and raise capital, you know, to build the curriculum. I was able to bet on myself. And what I found is that when I went into cities and they saw, and they asked the question, well, you know, who funded the equity for the building? And I said, me. And they said, well, who funded the money for the education? I said, me. They listened to me differently because they were speaking to an owner. And that's part of my, my I, say, I think you propel yourself uh, in terms of success when people can say, oh, okay, wow, okay, you did that. You're asking me to make the same bet that you made on yourself. And I think it drove some confidence in our work. Project Essen has both, it has two sides, as far as I understand. It's got the education side where people can get training and it's also got the nonprofit side. What's been happening with the nonprofit side in the past few years? Because as far as I understand, it started in 2016 in Detroit and just seemed to grow really, really fast. I mean, that was only four years ago and now it's in multiple cities. Yeah, and I think we'll be, by the end of this year, we'll be in probably 10 cities, uh, including London. Um, I mean, I think, um, I think we, I was speaking to a guy named Charlie Howe from, uh, from Brookfield by email and we were talking about sort of the current environment and I was saying we're busier than ever and what he said to me is, you know, it struck a chord with people before the most recent unrest. I can only imagine what it does. And so I think what we did is because because I was authentic and it reflected my own experience and the idea of I wanted to be successful, but I couldn't see the pathway. So I just kept reaching around to try and find sort of a path. I think what I was able to do was to sort of backwards engineer it a bit to say all these students in high school they're sitting around wondering what, what's going to happen in terms of their future. And so if I can go in and train them, but train them using something that's real, and I can also train them using their own neighborhood, because when you train them using their own neighborhood, what happens is that they begin to see value. When they see me looking to invest millions of dollars in their neighborhood, 
Well, they begin to say, hold on, my neighborhood's worth millions of dollars. And then the second piece is, hold on, that must mean that like, I'm pretty valuable. By going into neighborhoods and being willing to both train students, but also invest millions of dollars in their neighborhood, I think they began to actually feel greater self-worth both themselves and about their neighborhood. And so there was this energy like, hold on, there's all this value in my neighborhood. So now you get awareness. So hold on, I should be looking at investing in my neighborhood before some of the big developers come because I know this neighborhood better than anyone. I just got to learn the real estate. And that goes back to what you were saying about ownership, about having an ownership of a neighborhood that's your own rather than renting. Yeah, and I think ownership is key. And I I go back to the point about insecurity. You know, I have many days now where I'm like, well, is this going to work? You know, I'm going, I'm launching in Los Angeles. Uh, I've got large partners like, you know, Brookfield and Unibar Redumco Westfield and the Los Angeles Lakers. Like, I don't want to fail. How do I? How do I make sure? But then I go back and I say, but hold on. I own real estate in Detroit. I own real estate in Miami. I've done it in all these cities and it's worked. And so my point there is that like, I think ownership was part of what combated insecurity for me. And so a big part of what I try and do is teach students about your neighborhood has tons of worth to it. What we got to do is train you early enough so you can take advantage of it. So you got to double down with me on learning the language of real estate and I will give you my network. So whether it's Rick Clark or Ben Brown, you tell me you wanna work at Brookfield, I'm gonna call every single person at Brookfield and I'm gonna tell them your story. You mentioned some of the big names like Brookfield, obviously Westfield's involved, but of course, um, A-Rod. You've gotta tell us the story of how he got involved. Alex is, uh, has become a good friend and you know he's an incredible guy. I'll tell you how he got involved, but I'll also tell you the big favor he did to me. So at the time, I launched Project Destin, or after I launched it, I mean, like I was traveling on the road almost every single day, even more than when I was at Carlisle. Uh, and I probably had been sort of a less involved husband than I should have been. And so one of my friends um, was like, you know, I've got a good friend that works with JLo. You should take your wife out to, you know, her concert in Las Vegas. And I was like, I should do that. And so I go and I, I buy tickets and I invite one of our good friends, Deborah Lee, who who ran BET. Uh, and so we go out there and we go to the concert. Benny Medina, who's just a phenomenal, phenomenal man, um, basically comes over and well, invites us backstage. And then he comes over and he says, Cedric, you should meet Alex. Uh, he's a real estate investor. And so I didn't know that. So I go and meet Alex and within five minutes, Alex was like, we should launch Project Destiny in Miami. I completely did not think that he was serious. Uh, and so uh, two days later, I get an email from Benny Medina introducing me to Alex. A day later, Alex and I are on the telephone. Another five days later, we're doing a four-hour dinner in Miami, and we pick a day to launch. And Alex offers to us to use his home for a 100-person launch party in Miami, which allows us to build community. Uh, and that was the beginning of it. So we launched Project Destin there at the Boys and Girls Club. We run to play baseball, and it went phenomenally. And Alex came to every single day of training. And then he set on what became our first sort of Shark Tank style panel. Uh, and it was tremendous. We invested in an apartment building together. Uh, and then he and Jennifer were behind our launch in the Bronx. But I will tell you the biggest favor that he did for me is that he said to me, Cedric, this is a great idea. I wanna make sure people know that it's yours. So both Jennifer and I are gonna tell this story on social media to build awareness. 
And that was the greatest gift because like that tells the world that if it's worth my and Jennifer's time, it should also be worth your time. And that was a pretty transformational piece. Why do you think he um, got on board so quickly? I think because he and I, um, we share this belief that, you know, your zip code shouldn't determine the quality of your health or your health care. Your zip code shouldn't determine your long-term income. Your zip code that you're born into shouldn't determine all these things. We call it zip code wars. And so I think he bought into the fact that, like, I have a chance to take two things I'm passionate about, business and real estate, and really leverage our curriculum to train a new generation. And so I think that really resonated with, uh, with him, is that he's got a passion, an authentic passion for it. And by the way, we're launching a new program with Revney where we're training 100 students, and guess who will be teaching the class on valuation? Alex Rodriguez and the professor of real estate at Harvard Business School. Like, that just tells you, like, it wasn't just for, you know, the event at Yankee Stadium. He's there teaching it with us day in, day out. And for example, in the Bronx, the, the, the Brookfield project, that's not just about the, the training that it offers the kids. I mean, Brookfield has said that it's an investment for them because they're getting to know the community. It's going to pay dividends down the road. Yeah, yeah. What's happening now, um, considering everything that's happening, the city's on hold, the world's on hold, really? I mean, how have you kind of managed through this? Well, I sort of think, I mean, I sort of think of it as a tremendous call to action. I mean, I think there, there are a tremendous amount of fantastic words that everyone can relate to that are being spoken. And it's a time where we should sort of listen, reflect, and learn. But for me, I think it's also a time when you have to act. So if, I, if our work was ever necessary, you know, now is the time. Because if you think about the work that we do, we create conversations that sort of result in action. So folks at Brookfield are talking to folks in the Bronx um, through our program. They're doing lots of other stuff in the Bronx as well, but they're using our program to connect with urban youth. And that's super exciting. And by the way, when they speak to them, it's not this, it's not a situation where Brookfield shows up at a school and they're going to talk about how great their lives are and their projects are and then walk away. We're, we're encouraging people to dig in, work together on competition with our students. But the greatest gift that we give to both those groups is that we train students in the language of real estate before they ever meet a, a Brookfield person. They use our e-learning platform and students go through four hours of training online. So when they meet someone from Brookfield, they're talking about cap rates and NOI. And what happens is the person at Brookfield, they feel a certain connection through language, and then they're in a competition together. And so I think that bringing of people together through education and investing, that's what's going to propel us forward. In the past two weeks, there's been an enormous almost call to action, a national call to action from what's happened after the death of George Floyd and the protests that have spun around the nation and around the globe. Yes, and there have been a, a lot of responses from business leaders. Yeah. First of all, what did you think about everything that's happened in the last 10 days or so as, as an American? I mean, you know, a father was murdered uh, in front of our very eyes in eight minutes, right? And so you can't help but be sad. And I think that what we're experiencing right now is a tremendous um, and well-deserved acknowledgement, you know, of the imbalance in our country. Uh, and we're getting all of these wonderful statements because I think people are just fed up. Uh, and also uh, because of COVID-19, it's a little bit of a quieter environment. 
And so we're all able to really to reflect and have a conversation that sometimes we're too busy to dig in on. And we've been lucky because there's been lots of courageous leaders, you know, who are standing up, making statements uh, and doubling down that there's going to be some action. And so I think the, the great job um, that storytellers like you have is that we've got to make sure that it's not a check the box uh, of a great statement, a great marketing piece, and that there is sustained action that we measure. I mean, we need you all to do that with us because we need the acknowledgement and then it needs to be followed by the action. We've got to keep the conversation going if we're going to be successful in addressing the root cause issue. And I think the other piece is that, um, you know, we need these leaders to quickly follow with programmatic solutions, uh, not haphazard sort of kind of you know, things of like, I'm going to go and give $1,000 to my favorite charity. I mean, that is wonderful and that is needed, but you also need to build a pipeline for a new generation of diverse talent to get a job. You need to also look at your internal talent and be able to create programs where you demystify how to be successful in your company. So leadership sort of is more reflective of the, of the, of the country that we want. And so we need to get these programmatic solutions in place and they got to be sustained. Yeah, you described as business leaders making wonderful statements. When you say programmatic change, I mean, for someone who's listening to this, who's thinking, yeah, I want to make change. I'm in real estate. I work in a company. I want things to be different. What, what advice would you give? I mean, the first thing is start with metrics. I mean, what are you, what are you going to measure? When things, when things are measured, things change. Uh, and so first put some metrics in place and make sure they're sustained metrics and you report on them. I mean, that is what, I mean, sometimes it's the, it's the shame that can cause us to, to act on a continued basis. So I think you start with metrics. Um, so you start with the problem and then you focus on the solution and the metrics that you're gonna measure yourself by. And then you build the programs in the middle that go, are going to deliver that. I mean, that's what great leaders do. So people have to go and look inward on their company and say, let's have a cold, hard stare at our numbers. Yes. Um, where do you think the biggest problems are? Is it leadership? Is it boards? It's all of them. I mean, boards determine leadership. Leadership is measured by boards uh, and leaders need tremendous employees to be able to deliver success. And so it's all across the board. That's why I think it has to be programmatic and it has to be talent pipeline driven, but it's also got to be you know, how do you demystify success? And I use the example of the NBA again, which is that a great point guard, you know, leaves Duke and arrives on a basketball team. It's about his performance on the court, right? It's not about the fact that he's good buddies with the CEO's cousin, you know, from their certain independent school. And so, we, and by the way, that certain point guard, there's a ton of metrics that are used by the league to determine if he's a good point guard or not. And so the league and the team have demystified what success is in a point guard. It's assist, it's turnovers. Um, and so we've got to demystify success because I think lots of, you know, diverse people at junior and mid levels, you know, they, it's not clear to them how they move up the ranks. And certainly one thing is that I think many people think it's just about analytical skills and they double down on analytics, but then they don't build a set of relationship skills because whatever business you're in, you're in a sales business where it requires relationships, a network to be able to generate business. So we've got to start putting diverse employees in positions 
where they build those networks so they have the skills to be leaders in those businesses. Why do you think real estate or other companies have been able to sweep this problem, I guess, under the rug a little bit or, or, or ignore it a little bit? Well, I think that, I mean, by its very nature, you know, real estate companies tend to be small businesses. I mean, you have the Brookfields and the Westfields and others, but I would bet the majority of real estate businesses are probably sub sort of 50 people. Uh, and many of them started as family businesses that happened to be successful. Um, and so I think in many cases, they've never been measured. I mean, large companies get measured on these things. Small companies don't. And so I think they haven't addressed it because they haven't been held accountable to it, right? So I think that part of what's um, important about this current time is that hopefully you see a set of metrics, you know, for, you know, how we become anti-racist, uh, for how we address diversity, how we address talent. Like we need the metrics in place and then the programs to ensure success. Do you think that that should be handled by like regulatory bodies? For example, I'm thinking about California's uh, rules about publicly listed companies have to have certain board quotas for women. Do you think that that, I mean, it's, it, that's just one piece of the puzzle, obviously, but do you think that that's a valuable thing to do? Would you like to see more of that? I would like to see people do it before it comes to that. I mean, that would be disappointing to me is if you see, you only see diverse leadership because governments put in place quotas. That would be extraordinarily disappointing. What I would like to see is this selfishness among companies that selfishly we want to get in the, the best talent possible to be successful. No one's enforcing diversity at the NBA or at the NFL. It just so happens they recognize if we open it up to all talent, then we can be the highest and best performers. And so my hope is that companies just out of pure selfishness uh, begin to see diversity as a tool to be more successful. I mean, I, that's my optimistic hope. Right. It's in their interest. Self-interest is sustainable, right? I mean, that's, uh, that is my, my hope is that self-interest drives these programs. But again, you need the metrics because sometimes, sometimes I think you can get lost along the way, which is that you want to be the best company possible, but you outsource all the hiring to someone in the middle who isn't implementing the programs that you like to have put in place to develop the talent. So you need these leaders to really, you need it to actually be a CEO's responsibility to drive this issue. Because if he or she acknowledges that it's important, it will happen. If they don't, I fear it will not happen. I see what you're saying. I just, I just worry that human nature is to push away the problem. Look at climate change, for example. You know, it's funny, like my, my wife made this point to me early. You know, and she was describing the, uh, the new generation. I'm not sure if it's Gen X or Gen, I mean, not, it's not Gen X. Zoomers, they're called. What are they called? Zoomers. Zoomers. Uh, and, and my wife was saying that this new generation, they want you to pick a side. Are you racist or are you anti-racist? And we want it to be clear in all of your materials and your actions. So in some ways, you hope that customers begin to hold folks accountable. Because if people don't want to move in your apartment buildings, because they go and look at your statement and you don't hit the bill on, you know, on your diversity metrics, you know, that is the greatest, that is, that, that is the greatest tool to drive change because people vote with their dollars and now you have an issue. And so we've got to go, we've got to, we've got to have a multi-pronged approach. But ultimately, I think there's got to be metrics so even the government can figure out if you're doing it or not. 
Have you got a lot of calls in the past two weeks or so um, from people in the industry saying, what can we do? What should we do? How can, how can you help us? How can we help you? Yeah, no, we've, got a, we've gotten a lot of, there, there, were a lot of, there were a lot of conversations that we were having um, where there hadn't been execution uh, that, that are getting executed now. Uh, but I will tell you, I mean, those aren't the most, those aren't the impressive conversations. The impressive conversation was the one I had, you know, maybe a month ago before, before any of this happened. And we were in the midst of COVID-19 and the city of New York canceled 75,000 jobs through the summer youth employment program. And I made a call to, to Rick Clark. I made a call to Willie Walker and we spoke with Revney and within two weeks, Revney had created a hundred internships for diverse students. Now, this is before the protests, before the unrest. I love those conversations because Revney and the real estate board and the real estate folks in New York said there is a problem that we're well suited to address. Like those are the conversations I love because, you know, they recognize a problem, but they also recognize their ability to help address it. Like that's what gets me excited. Sounds like you've got a lot of um, positivity for, for what is lying ahead for the industry. I'm an optimist. Uh, and. You know, what you know, I'm optimistic now is because there is widespread acknowledgement of the issue. What I've got to do is be able to have the conversations with executives and say, this is the problem. We've got a program and a set of solutions that I think could be helpful. Let's partner together to help realize them. Like, that's what gets me excited is that I think that we've got a solution to some of the existing problems. And I'm not going to sleep until we um, were able to, to grow and try and address it.